This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So any of you who have been following this show this season will remember one of my favorite episodes from the beginning of the year in which I documented a water restoration job that I went out to Nicaragua to do in collaboration with Restoration Agriculture Development, the contracting company founded by Mark Shepard. Now there I worked under the guidance of Jake Takif, Rad's dryland restoration specialist and lead designer on that job. Now I got along famously with Jake and I learned a ton from working alongside him on that project. So much of his personal journey and the story of the development of his own farm and restoration design in western Colorado didn't make it into the episode that we recorded back then, but I knew that I would need to follow up and share his story with all of you. Well, we were finally able to find the time and make our long overdue catch-up call happen. So let's start with a little intro to set the context. Now, Jake and his wife, Megan, started Cedar Springs Farm back in 2016 on the western slope of Colorado, where they built a home and now have two children. They're focused on building soil, fostering biodiversity, and managing water. The project utilizes scaled-up permaculture techniques and regenerative farming practices, including silvopasture, rotational grazing, and agroforestry. The management practices have transformed the landscape from an arid, high desert into a lush system of pastures with trees and yield high-quality beef and pork. Jake also hustles as a project coordinator, consultant, and field manager for restoration agriculture development, through which he has had the opportunity to design and install regenerative systems for farmers all over the world. His experience on his own farm, combined with the many installations he's managed for clients, gives him a unique perspective and approach to the regenerative farming movement. Now in this conversation, we're going to unpack that approach piece by piece. We start with a little background into his first experiences in farming and the elements that clicked and have stayed with him his whole life. We go into the key connections and learnings that have informed his growth and capabilities as a farmer and land manager, as well as the mentors that have shaped that path. Jake also shares the details of his design approach to his own farm and how the patterns of the various ecosystems where he's farmed have helped to inform him about the hydrology, plant communities, animal communities, and the essential relationship between all of them that have come together to make his medium-sized farm work so well. We also dissect some of the specifics of the experiments that he's run over the last seven years, those which have worked and those that haven't, and contributed to the evolving transformation of the land that continues to get better and better. Now, in general, I'm a big admirer of people who have come to develop such a close and observant relationship with the land and living beings 
of the places that they inhabit. And Jake is an exceptional example of someone who has centered his life around a deep connection to all the diverse and nuanced elements of his own ecosystem, from the natural ecology, his own family and local community, and even the complexities of the economy and the socioeconomic realities that they participate in. So I'll leave it there and I'll hand things over now to Jake Takif. Jake, man, finally we made this happen. It's been way too long since I've seen you last when we were in Nicaragua. We had a really good opportunity of talking about the project that we had there, a little bit of your work, but let's take the opportunity today to, well, first of all, get caught up from all this time we've been away and then talk about how you have gotten to where you are as well. What do you think? Sounds like a plan. I'm, I'm stoked we get to finally do this. We've been talking about it since we met. Yeah, right. It's long overdue. So let's start at the beginning. Um, you did not start out living on a farm or in this lifestyle. Tell me a little how you made this transition and become a steward of the landscape. I mean, from early on in my life, I, I always knew this is what I wanted to be doing. Uh, I had the opportunity when I was young living in uh, New Hampshire and in Vermont to work on farms. And as soon as the opportunity came up to live on a farm, I, I moved, uh, I was still in high school, but I moved uh, to an old woman's farm. She was doing uh, milk and cows, running draft horses, uh, pigs, big gardens, you name it. And so I, I took the opportunity, lived with her for a couple of years and learned everything I could from her. And that was really what sent me on the tra uh, trajectory that I'm on today. Uh, I learned a lot about land stewardship and holistic animal management from her worked on many farms after that all over the all over the country really uh, you know the journey kind of took me on the west coast to hawaii eventually to colorado and uh colorado is where i had the opportunity to really start my first endeavor which was on the front range uh just north of uh boulder where we did a raw milk dairy and that was going great. We were doing rotational grazing. I was leasing land and eventually decided Boulder wasn't really my, the place I wanted to be and had the opportunity to liquidate my herd and sell pretty much all the infrastructure I built up over there and actually purchase a piece of land in Hotchkiss, Colorado. And that's where we are today. And that transition coincided with me meeting Mark Shepard and putting together the pieces of it's not just about the animals it's not just about the rotational grazing it's about integrating that water management and integrating that agroforestry into the animal management and you get that perfect uh trifecta with those three things the animal management the water management and the agroforestry and just uh ever since i bought this piece of land in hotchkiss just been learning, experimenting, and using this place as a data point and uh, really a crash course on utilizing those uh, permaculture techniques in the high desert, scaling them up uh, first to 40 acres. Now we're you know scaled up to managing 120 acres, and you know also putting in systems with uh, similar practice uh, all across the state in a similar environment and using all these systems uh, to learn and basically develop a, a situation that could be scaled up even greater over time. Amazing, man. And I want to come back and dig into the specifics of 
how you've designed your place and how you've started to have more influence on the community, the farm community around you. But let's go back to something you mentioned about how you first found your way onto a farm and yeah. how big of a life-changing event that was for you. I remember from hanging out with you in Nicaragua that you were feeling lost at the time, kind of disconnected oh, from things. And yeah, what was it that it really clicked with you on that farm? What were the things that connected with you and gave you some purpose and a new direction in life? Yeah, you know, it as a young man in this very uh, confusing world we are all born into, this day and age is it's very strange. Uh, and there's a lot of things in this world that aren't maybe real or, you know, aren't based in reality. Um, and growing up, you know, I always, I remember, uh, looking for something real, wanting something real and not, and having trouble finding it. And instead turning to, you know, drugs and alcohol, turning to a lifestyle that, you know, put myself in some dangerous situations because I was struggling. And when I found, um, when I moved onto that farm in Vermont, it gave me for the first time in my life, not just a purpose, but a real sense of responsibility. And by that, I mean, if I didn't wake up and do the things I was responsible for, they didn't get done. And the result was that an animal was going to suffer or the farm was going to lose money. There would be a real um, consequence for my actions, mm, not just somebody being like, that was bad, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Nobody would even do that necessarily. Sometimes yeah. I'd get yelled at and stuff, but like for the most part, I learned pretty fast. Like you just have to be on point, wake up every morning, do the things that need to get done. And I thrived in that environment. I, I suddenly felt connected to something real. Uh, you know, the animals all depended on us to take care of them. We were stewards of the land. We all depended on each other on that farm. And I, I felt connected. I felt, uh, yeah, I felt like I, I had found my purpose in life. And that's really, it was so powerful that it's carried me all the way here over over a decade later. Uh, and it's still what I do. And it's what I depend on every day. Um, mm. Even though it's not the easiest life, there are easier lifestyles. There are easier ways to make money. If you're looking to make money, there's all these paths. This, you have to love it. And you have to, in a way, it's a way of life. It's more than a career. It's uh, it's something we do. It's a labor of love. Yeah. While at the same time, ease and simplicity are not at all directly connected to purpose, to fulfillment, to these other forms of compensation that are by in no way monetary and mm -hmm. surprisingly undervalued in the majority of our cultures and narratives right now. But clearly, this is something that is connected with you and become a lifestyle rather than a hobby to reconnect from a lifestyle that you you don't find those types of fulfillment and, and uh, purpose in. So beyond, okay, so from the learning from that first farm experience and through the jobs and the opportunities that you took afterwards, I know you went to many different ecologies and biomes and climates as you traveled around learning more, specifically in Hawaii, we talked about a lot uh, previously. What were some of the things that you learned from that original experience and the new knowledge that you built in these other places that helped you to connect to those very different ecologies 
that could maybe be helpful for somebody listening as to where they can start their own learning and connection journey wherever they are. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great thing to bring up because Earth is so amazing, the different biodiversities, the different regions and how unique each region is. There's similarities across the board. Like, for example, we're all using like oxygen and carbon, you know, water, things like that. But altitudes, temperatures, uh, yearly precipitation is going to fluctuate so much depending on where you are and create vastly different landscapes. Uh, and having farmed anywhere from the high desert in Colorado to the jungles of sea level in Hawaii, um, you know, you really get to know that there's, there's big differences, but there's also big similarities. But I think the most important thing to bring up about that concept is that no matter where you are, you have to adapt and you have to uh, take what you know and just start experimenting, observing uh, the observing our interactions with the environment and the effect we have on our environment and then just continuously adapt. And there's so much information out there these days between the internet, podcasts, books, you name it, and all these big names in this regenerative movement and uh, farming movement in general, who will say, okay, this is what you do. This is the formula. This is how you do it. And I guess what I learned the most by having farmed in so many different regions is that there is no formula. There are baseline similarities across the board, but wherever you are, you have to become the master of your, of your region. You have to learn it. And unfortunately, unless you live like, unless you're like Joel Salatin's neighbor or like somewhere where somebody's already literally written the book for right there, uh, you, you have to kind of not necessarily start from scratch. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you do have to fully adapt and fully uh, be willing to make a lot of mistakes, learn as you go, and 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 really just become. Uh, you have to set your goals early on, and then be willing to work with those goals in that particular environment, which may look different than anybody else's goals, and the environment right. may look than other people's environment. So all these factors are important. So I guess what I'm trying to say in this tangent is nobody did, nobody can do the work for you. Yeah. Anywhere you show up on this planet and you want to make something for yourself and build something beautiful for your family or your community, you got to you got to do the work and there's no shortcuts. Yeah, I agree. There's no shortcuts. However, there are some incredible resources that I know you and both I have uh, increasingly found when we get to different places, like you mentioned, talking to neighbors or, you know, maybe we're lucky enough to have somebody who's really done that work for generations before we get there, who can act as a mentor, as a guide through our own learning journeys. I know for myself, there is an incredible amount of knowledge and wisdom here in, in and around Spain that has really helped me jump through some of the the hoops and, and the learning challenges to get further than I would have on my own. But you still have to pay attention, interact, observe, and reevaluate or constantly audit your assumptions or what you think you already know to see if they're actually true, if they they work from year to year. You know, one year you might get a whole lot more rainfall and that completely changes the germination cycle of the plant communities. And then 
you know, all the, the cascades of effects that happen from there. Um, where have been some of your, your learning assistances, your, your mentorships or your, again, not shortcuts, but, uh, yeah, pushes to, to jump past what you might've learned on your own. Absolutely. Yeah. I've got the main ones are where I started off with her name was Suzanne, Suzanne Lupian over there in Vermont, an amazing farmer, an amazing woman. She taught me basically what I know about animal management. Mm. Uh, this is a woman who could wake up in the morning, hand milk her six jerseys, bring that milk into her cheese room, disappear, come out with a 50 pound wheel of cheddar, rub lard all over it that she made from her own pigs, throw it in the basement and be ready in two years. And that's Man. the kind of person she was. And I don't I know mean, this isn't that long that. ago. You're not, you're the same age as me. People were yeah. not doing this in Vermont. Like maybe a hundred years ago, you could have no, found this, multiple this of was, those people. This, this is the kind of person who, that's why I, I was so touched, I think, by yeah. her. And it, why it had such an impact in my life. Getting to live that close to something so real. It's so was very powerful for me. And to learn how to manage the cattle, manage the hogs, manage the landscape from her was a huge uh, boost for me at that age. I was young and impressionable and I, you know, I learned a ton from her. Mm -hmm. And then to go from there, uh, my journey took me on the West Coast and then eventually to Hawaii where I met uh, another mentor of mine who has since passed, but his name is Josh, uh, Josh Stern. And he him and his uh his you know his partner at the time Beth Rings they they really kind of took me in to a really incredible my first experience of like a food forest mm. like working with plants major biodiversity major uh all uh, this beautiful perennial tropical forest food was so abundant we grew our coffee and then where the forest wasn't, where, where the fruit trees and, you know, mac nut trees and coffee trees weren't, there'd be these spaces that were open and he'd rotate those spaces between papaya, banana, gardens, and everything would be cover cropped and turned under and moved around and everything was always changing. Mm. And it taught me so much about uh, working with, you know, basically perennials, working with the ecological annual and disturbances yeah all of it and the annual yeah. farm like the you know the the lettuce patch and the the gardens how they would move around the landscape they wouldn't just be in one spot they'd move through the woods essentially and then it would yeah. reinvigorate different areas and learned a ton from them and, and just you know loved my experience living there learning there and from that when i came to colorado <clears throat> was able to really be thinking about, <clears throat> you know, cows, pi pigs, trees, gardens, really wrapping my head around all of it, which was my, uh, the basis of my, the dairy farm I ran over there. Yeah. And when I met Mark Shepard, who became someone of my, mo my most recent mentor, he's a mentor, he's a friend, he's, uh, he's really just shown me in a way that last key I needed with all that stuff, which was the water management. And so to bring that water management into that picture, we have those three really powerful uh, forms of management now. And that's now water kind of plants and animals. 
Yeah. It's yeah. what I based my entire uh, formula on. And so those three mentors in a way, they each taught me a different aspect of the type of farming I do today. And not only that, they each almost represent like a, you could almost say different elements of the natural world. <laughs> it's almost how I categorize it because that's how I utilize those techniques today is, you know, how do we work with the animals? How do we work with the plants? How do we take care of our water? Those are the main things. Yeah. You yeah. do all that, everything else flourishes. And your understanding and intuition about those things really made an impression on me when we got to work together. And I'm curious how each of those elements came together to inform the original design of that dairy farm that you had in Colorado that led to the growth and development that eventually led you to where you are now. I mean, the dairy farm in Colorado that I had it was, we got a lot of really good stories out of it because it was hilarious. We had, we were renting a house on two acres. It was technically unincorporated county land surrounded by uh, like a subdivision and uh, um, like a manufacturing plant and a highway. We were like caved in by all this crazy stuff but that was home base. And we had like a little milking shed there and, you know, some pigs and whatever, but then I'd lease land all around the area. And I'd just be out there with my little blue trailer, moving cows around to each different property and milking on the different properties. The milk would all come back to the house. Oh, so you had a mobile milking parlor at that point. Exactly. Got it. And then the house itself was like a self-serve. Everybody would come and pick up their milk at that, uh, at that oh, so this is direct sale. Yep. And it was all raw milk. And we, we had a lot of side hustles too, to make it work. We, you know, I would, it was before everybody knew about A2A2 milk and A2A2 cattle, the like more digestible milk, essentially. I'm still unfamiliar with that. Can you give me a little overview? Yeah. Disclaimer right away. I'm not really like a biologist or totally educated. So to your viewers, if I get any of this a little wrong, feel free to correct. But the the basis of it is older breeds of cattle all carried an A2A2 uh, beta casein protein. And it's very similar to what every other uh, mammal on earth produces in their milk and therefore is highly digestible for us. And this has been bred out in newer breeds? So in newer breeds and breeding programs uh, over the past, I don't know how long, uh, you know, especially really modern breeds like the Holstein, mm -hmm. uh, they carry what's called the A1 beta casein protein. So it could be A1, 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 A2, or A2, A2, you know, uh, it's the way I guess it works. And it wasn't really that well known 10 years ago. And even today, it's not super well known, but it's become more well known. Well, back then when nobody knew about it, I kind of realized this is, this was going to be a thing. And so I started buying up A2A2 cattle. And the way I do that is test a whole, I'd go to find somebody who was selling some jerseys. Jerseys tend to have a high likelihood of having A2 genetics. Okay. I'd pull a hair sample from each one, send it to UC Davis, get back the results and buy all the cows that were A2A2. And so I very quickly and for not a lot of money was able to develop a pretty good sized herd of A2A2 cattle. And then I had an A2A2 bull and was then starting to hype up, talk about, and market A2A2 cattle. And then Ooh, I wasn't just- As a very cattle, specific value proposition. 
yeah. and selling breeding stock as well. Uh-huh. So through that was able to, in a short amount of time, accumulate a large amount of capital on the hoof. Mm-hmm. Um, because those A2, A2 cattle at that time, and even now, I mean, I could, I could go out and buy just random heifers off of a, out of a herd that was being liquidated, test them, pick them up for 800 bucks. Once they were tested, I knew they were A2, A2, bring them home, train them, make them nice dairy cows, breed them to my A2, A2 bull, sell them for 3,500 bucks. Mm. And so my friends all said I was like flipping cows and it was true, <laughs> but that was how I got started in a way. That was how I was develop, able to develop enough capital to really get the, uh, the ball rolling and get some yeah. momentum with the project. Um, and then of course, just out there hand milking cows, filtering the milk, selling milk to families and uh, developing a, a community through that. And the community of people who I got to meet through that time is actually still really a big part of my community today. And uh, some of us have moved out here to get, it's like, I didn't move out here on my own. Like a few of us kind of picked up and moved to this side of the mountain. Okay. So let's talk about that transition then. Yeah. So on the front range where I was living, land is really expensive. It's getting developed really fast. And it was just kind of not my kind of community over there. It was starting to shift. Uh, Boulder was, really exploding and i oh sure so it is mostly development that was driving up the prices there not agriculture yeah and it got just a little too uh or it got a lot too crazy for me sure i like it quiet i I like rural areas (laughs) i hear you and so i you know my friends aj nicole they bought a peach orchard out here and we're starting a farm in this area on the western slope I said, I'll help you with the move. I'll, I'll help you with my truck and my trailer came out here, took one look around. I was like, you know what? This is, this is my speed. Land prices were much better. And, uh, the, the place I bought, it was the first place I looked at. It had everything I needed. It had, uh, you know, you could tell it had groundwater. You could tell it hadn't been managed at all. You could tell it had potential to really be, uh, brought to life really uh a lot of potential to be activated if that groundwater quickly dig into that a little more because there's a lot of people who are looking for land at the moment what are those indicators that you're looking for what are the things that tell you about the potential or perhaps some deal breakers or some challenges that others might have overlooked you bet so the the main things i looked for was uh I had some needs. I had some things that I needed to be, to be there. And one was the potential to work with water. And that didn't mean I needed a year round gushing flow, but it it meant I needed some potential. Now there happened to be on this farm, a ravine that would run seasonally when uh, people would irrigate upstream during irrigation season, it would flow. And at the end of the season, it would stop. And so I said, okay, that's some potential right there. And there's, I could also see the potential for, for groundwater across the landscape. And the way I know I found that is uh, you'd find low spots in the landscape that had different plant species growing in them. For example, yeah. reed grasses, maybe an occasional cattail or willow, an indicator that they're drinking something because all around those little areas would be just dry. Yeah, like scrub. Yeah. 
sagebrush and uh, napweed yeah. and mostly just invasive, uh, invasive weeds that could just really catch the hardy stuff that can get by on nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah so knowing, like, this is yeah. why knowing those plant communities is so important. Maybe you don't know the exact species because you're from a different area where they don't have them, but you can make those connections as to, okay, these are the types mm -hmm. of plants that I normally see, let's say around a riparian zone or on okay. the edge or a depression. And if I see them out in another place where I wouldn't normally, it's a good indication that there are conditions there that are similar. Yeah. It's yeah. solid because they yeah. won't grow without water. Right. And the, and of course, anywhere you are, there's going to be different dryland scrub species. One of the first things I noticed at my place is that it, it was a dryland ecosystem, but it wasn't an intact dryland ecosystem. Like, and what I mean by that is, yeah, there was sagebrush, there was juniper, there were native trees, but they were all overgrown with invasives and mm -hmm. the ground was just cracked and dried. And you can tell there was no, uh, disturbance it, or impact to, to yeah, the keystone right? species had been yeah. removed. The species that would manage that landscape were gone. So even and, the ones that could grow there were moving towards senescence and decline. Yeah. And I, I kind of thought to myself, this property would be a really cool project because it mm. has all the potential and it's also in, it was also trashed. There was piles of garbage everywhere. Oh, wow. The old barn on the property was full of trash. The, everything was so oh, the price similar tag, to my place when I moved out here. Yeah. Man. And so the price cool. tag was right. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> I'd rather do the work. Oh I'd yeah. Work than buy something pristine. And so that's, bank, yeah. that's, that's what I've been doing. And you know, we can really get into the details of it, but essentially through management, using the water management, using the uh, rotational grazing, and then also the agroforestry, we have on not a huge budget, absolutely transformed this place, uh, made it into uh, an oasis, essentially. Well, let's break down that process because that takes time. It doesn't all happen at once. And I know from many of our talks about water that that's usually where you start the design that helps to set the pattern for the landscape and can help determine where you put certain things based on where you're able to hydrate, where you're not. Talk about that design process and where you made your first interventions to get this process moving forward on its own. Yeah, this... You know, in a way, it was a real crash course on this project because it was my, it was my first project and it was my own project uh, with water management. You know, today, having been doing this now for these years and been able, like doing it for other people and learning so much from Mark and I'd probably do it different today. That being said, I'm really happy I did it the way I did because there's all the designs I put in on this land, it was really just a, a very simple and effective design that just covered my entire landscape. And the, the basis of it was, okay, we have this ravine where we have a seasonal water flow and we have uh, the rights to use that. It's called wastewater. I hate calling it that because it's not it waste. wasting water. <laughs> yeah. It's, but you know, call it tailings, whatever. So we have the ability to use this, uh, you know, basically what runs off my neighbor's fields. Yeah. And so, and then we also have the ability in my County to build what's called stock ponds, yeah. which are small ponds that are for drinking your cattle out of. So 
first step is let's do the water management. And if, when you're approaching water management or when I'm approaching water management, my first thing is like, you have to get into the mindset of being a beaver because the beaver is the keystone species of the Rocky mountains of this landscape that managed the water for eons. And when all the ranchers and miners and everybody blew up all the dams and people the know, existence, yeah. got them for pelts and whatever. Yeah. They're, they're still here, but in way smaller numbers than they used to be. So my thought process with water management, especially here is what would a beaver do? Because what they did, it wasn't like they were just animals doing stuff for no reason. They had an incredible harmony with this landscape and the landscape actually evolved symbiotically with them. That's what makes them a keystone species. And so what would a beaver do? A beaver would first start in those low spots in those ravines where the water would flow and dam it up and let that water backfill into that natural uh, ravine and it would create a small pond. Boom, I've got a stock pond now and we mimicked what a beaver would do and we're backfilling water into our water table, just like how it would happen if a beaver was there. So what we did was we started off doing that and combined it with swales that catch overflow. So for example, when we have spring runoff and surplus water that we're able to use, um, we're able to actually push some of that surplus water out onto these swales, which uh, move the water across the landscape on contour, starting at those ravines, starting at the wet areas and finishing on the dry areas. It's a very simple concept. That area is too dry. This area is too wet. Let's create a, uh, a swale, which is essentially a ditch with a berm on the downhill side to slowly, very gently convey that water across the landscape. And now we're evenly hydrating the landscape instead of just having a deep wet area here. And then all the rest is dry land scrub. So we put those in, uh, in the spring of 2017, my first round of earthworks. And we put in about 8,000 trees that year planted on contour with those earthworks. And the combination of, uh, of the ponds with those earthworks started to do this amazing thing where all of a sudden we had these bands of green growth all across the farm. And the other thing that we noticed pretty quick was the areas where I first noticed, oh, the water table's higher in these areas. And there's like maybe a willow here or cattail there. They were no longer just uh, a hypothesis. Those areas actually started to flow with water. And so essentially became springs, active springs. The other thing we noticed was uh, in that process, obviously at this point, the whole system began charging. The water was moving into the water table. The soil was soaking up water. We were rehydrating the whole landscape. And we noticed something similar to like what a sponge would do is once the sponge became full, it just held. It, it no longer was like, we're dry, we're wet, we're dry, we're wet, which right. is the classic a swing between Colorado agriculture. Right. Um, which now that all the beaver dams have been removed in the high country, that's how Colorado agriculture is. You have a flush of water when the snow melts and then you're dry. You well, have a flush of snow yeah. water 
Yeah. And then it's dry again. Yeah. Well, we noticed by mimicking the reintroduction of beavers artificially through, uh, through, you know, excavators and whatnot, but like by reintroducing uh, earthworks similar to what they would have done and then putting in those swales, our whole system charged over the course of a couple of years. And that seasonal, uh, that ravine I told you about, that was a seasonal drainage where it would flow and then be dry, flow when people were irrigating and then dry out again. It became a perennial stream. It started flowing year round to the point where even during a drought year, uh, we've had two really bad drought years since we put the system in. On those drought years, my top, my very top pond will go bone dry. There's no water coming onto our farm. Everything's just dry, dry, dry. And our stream and our ponds are just flowing and crystal clear and topped off and they have trout jumping in them and amphibians breeding in them and blue herons and eagles, you name it, waterfowl. So people, people think about these systems. Oh, it's this long-term, long-time investment. You might not even live to see the results of your work. In some ways that may be true. I'm not going to ever see an old growth forest here. That being said, within seven years or less, we witnessed an absolute transformation of our landscape mm-hmm. from dry, high desert, covered in noxious, uh, allelopathic weeds, a transition from that to a lush grasslands with emerging trees coming in everywhere and cattle managing the landscape. So, you know, that being said, there's a lot we can all of a sudden learn from that here, which is okay. Colorado and the entire Colorado river basin for that matter, and possibly the, one of the most affected in the United States. Yeah, we can we can suddenly make a statement, which is uh, maybe it's a big statement. Maybe some people will disagree with me on this, but it's not about the uh, so we're considered like a tributary into the Gunnison River, which then goes into the Colorado River, which mm-hmm. is the Colorado River Basin. So we're those yeah. we're where that water comes from the mountains. Yeah, and everybody downstream, their whole thing is similar to what the original mistake was in the beginning. We want our water, break up the beaver dams, give us the water, break up the beaver dams. That was how this whole desertification mess started. But what if we reintroduced in a controlled manner, the engineered genius that the beavers showed us to rehydrate the high country? It's not about use less water in the high country. It's about use it in a way so that your output is actually greater than your input. Yeah. If everybody who used water in the high country of the Colorado River Basin, if everybody's land was producing more water than their landscape was actually using for agriculture, that would be a game changer. Because right now, it's the opposite. Everybody's yeah. using, 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 and then it's just dry. But if, if everybody treated their farms like a biological sponge, which would charge when water was available and then slow release year round, we wouldn't have issues of dry, dry reservoirs downstream. Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly the situation that I find myself in here in Catalonia as well. We're in a small mountain range in between the Pyrenees that divide the peninsula from the rest of mainland Europe. 
and the coastal range. So we're just a little pocket of mountains in between. And we represent some of the smaller tributaries that go into the regional larger river called the Ter. And this is kind of ground zero for how much water can we infiltrate from, uh, unfortunately we don't have snowpack, but the irrigate or the precipitation that happens further up the mountains that usually comes down quite fast and can easily dry out. If we're able to hold that here, what it could do for the reservoirs and for the agriculture further downstream in the lowlands, it, you know, this is kind of the, that linchpin for that system. And I think many people are in similar situations, regardless of where they are in their watershed or their water catchment, there are opportunities to work with everything upstream in order to create more constant, regular, resilient flows throughout the entire system. So mm -hmm. that's the water component. And obviously there's so much more that we could say about that, but talk to me about how you've brought in the plant and the animal communities for the longer term management rather than, you know, it's one thing to put water into the ground. It's another to cycle it through biological processes. And that's where these other elements come in. How have you managed those ones so far? You bet. So they work hand in hand, of course, we could, I mean, I could draw you like a freaking Venn diagram and show you like how everything's <laughs> working together. It's very complex and also very, very beautiful and simple. And it's natural. Mm. The, what is great about these earthworks and the way they tie in, first of all, I'll talk, I guess, about the, the trees, the agroforestry is that the earthworks, the water management sets the pattern for the rest of the system. It's like the backbone of the system. So I'm not just planting trees randomly. I'm not planting trees in rows that are like an orchard that you've ever seen. What we're doing is uh, where those water management swales wrap around my ridges, come back into the valleys, wrap back out on contour. We're using those as our design and planting our trees along those swales. Now I've experimented a lot with where do you plant the tree? Do you put it? in the swale? Do you put it below on the berm? Do you put it uphill? I, so I've tried all of it here and eventually settled on planting them on the berm, uh, just about halfway up the berm, not on the top, just about halfway up. On the inside I, half towards the, yep, the ditch. Yeah. Exactly. On the inside part of the berm. And I started doing that because we need the trees to be close to where the water settles in our environment, there's not enough natural precipitation to keep a tree alive. So at least not most species. Or at so least not the, when they're early on getting established. Yeah. Exactly. So the trees need to be able to touch water and drink, but you don't want them in the channel bottom drowning either. Yeah, you can run there's a happy middle ground. Yeah. The nice thing about the berm too, is when you cut that swale, you essentially heap all the topsoil up into that berm. So the berm is like, that's the place a concentration <laughs> of topsoil. It's like a beautiful, it has tons of organic matter in it. That's what you want to plant into. Sure. I've, I've also been planting on the uphill side of the soil and had uh, not as great results because you're, you essentially scraped off the topsoil and it's uphill of where that water is settling. Whereas you want to be on the downhill side where the water is sub irrigating. Um, Real quick, what are we talking about as far as slopes on your land? Is this really steep slopes or is this pretty pretty flat. It's not, it's not too steep. Um, the areas I'm talking about nothing, for example, you couldn't drive a tractor on. Okay. It's all pretty tame. Uh, that being said, it does have a slope and some areas are, uh, 
a little steeper than others. What's interesting about the swales is it's basically a topographical map. If you look at it from above mm -hmm. a map, a contour map. So in the flatter areas, they get wider like they would on a topo map. And in the steeper areas, they actually get closer together. Did you and design so it for specific height differences is where you put those on contour? I, you know, I didn't, I, I straight engineered all of those swales to run at a 1% grade. Mm -hmm. And I know that you don't have to do it. You can also go with more of a paralleled system mm -hmm. where you have more uh, parallels and you try to stay within the tolerances of, you know, basically zero to 2% while keeping a parallel. We did that together in Nicaragua. Yeah. The, the reason for that, that's the tolerance before water picks up enough inertia or kinetic energy that it can start to erode things. If you stay within that tolerance, you don't risk that. Exactly. You stay below erosion, but you still want the water to move. And if yeah. you're pitching them, you want to move in a certain direction. You have to stay pitched in one direction right? or else you get spots where it'll pool and flow over the, my system here. And this is something maybe I would have done differently. Uh, but it's how I did it and it works is I engineered every line as its own master line to run at a 1% grade from start to finish. And so what it looks like from above is a topo map, but also what Mark said the first time he saw it, it looked like the veins on an oak leaf, mm. uh, the way they, they run out on, uh, from the main stem out. Sure. And, and it really has a beautiful natural look to it and would not be an ideal system for mechanized farming because it's not parallel. So you wouldn't want to be running a tractor back and forth in these alleys, uh, making hay or, you know, tilling or doing corn and beans. What these alleys are specifically for is grazing cattle. And so I don't mind that they weave, that they meander. This is exactly why that context is so important. If you were going out there for a different type of farming, you would have designed that differently in the main pattern for the water in order mm -hmm. to make it convenient and effective to run machinery on there for that type of production or management. But since you're doing grazing, you don't need to follow those mechanized patterns or those parallels that you would extrapolate from them. You have a lot more flexibility to follow the natural contours of the land you're managing. It's, that's exactly it. And my land isn't conducive to mechanized farming anyway. We're rocky high desert. Yeah. Like this isn't where you'd want people to still try it. <laughs> people try it. But in my opinion, the most effective way to extract protein off of this landscape is going to be cattle. They wait, you mean it isn't uh, precision fermentation of grains and legumes into imitation meat? What do you mean, Jake? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the real deal. We're talking about animals that by their own free will work for me 24 seven touching every corner of the paddock I give them and essentially turning, uh, you know, native grasses, legumes and weeds into a fermented sauerkraut, which they then spray across the fields for me as fertilizer. And the byproduct just happens to be meat. Mm. And, and so many other things too, right? They, they so can many other reproduce. Things. Yeah. There's yeah, so many other it, benefits that only, are specific to living systems that you cannot manipulate in other mechanical ways. That's correct. And the effect they've had on the trees getting established is enormous. So these trees that we planted on the, uh, on our swales, they don't just exist on their own and they're not just like left to nature. We're actually managing them with cattle. So we use portable electric fencing, those step in posts with a poly wire, a solar powered charger, 
and were able to actually describe to the cattle the the mission for the day mm. using that. And for the most part, they go along with it. Sometimes they duck under it or jump over it or say, you know, we're doing what we want. But overall, they respect the fencing enough that um, we're able to really describe a pattern across the landscape. And that pattern comes back to the water management. So the water management is the master pattern. It leaves uh, alleys in in between each swale that need to be grazed. So that's what we use the portable electric fencing to describe to the cattle. Now we put the portable electric fencing right up against the trees. So the cows can eat, actually even browse on them a little bit, but can't step on them mm -hmm. while they're getting established. Once the trees get big enough, gonna have They'll a- be out of browsing range. Anyway. Yeah, once the trees are large enough, which a lot of them are now, but some of them are still coming up and I, I want to give them another couple of years sure. to really get strong. At that point, the move is actually not put water on the system for long enough that everything dries out and then run the cows on the entire, run the cows right on the swales and berms and right in the trees. And that way they get a really clean mowing of the whole sy system. And it's a more even mowing. Right now, the mowing, you can really see the mowed alleys because I'm keeping them off of the swales. Yeah. And that was one of the things I had meant to ask you, because a lot of people have difficulty of integrating livestock with agroforestry systems in that transition period when they're really small, when they're vulnerable to trampling or browsing that can actually kill them. And your way is just making sure that there's enough of a distance between the perimeter of the electrical fence that, you know, maybe they can get a nibble in there, but unless they escape, they more or less are kept at a distance that's safe enough until they're able to uh, reach a height or a girth that they are safe for the cattle to be around without knocking them over or killing them. That's exactly it. And the, the idea is I put the polywire close enough against the tree that the cow can reach its head under and graze all around the base of the tree. Oh, okay. Eliminating weed pressure and giving them a little boost. Giving anyway. them airflow and, and really cleaning up around the base of the tree. Yeah. But, and yeah, they'll browse the tree a little bit, but a cow browsing a tree isn't going to kill it. Mm. What's going to kill a tree at that stage is a cow like trying to scratch on it hard enough that it uproots it and pushes it over or a yeah. cow um, stepping on it and just breaking it off right at the base and it can get uh, infected right there. Sure. Those are the kind of things that'll kill a young tree. A cow reaching its head underneath, grazing down all around it and then nibbling a few leaves here and there, that doesn't do any damage. What would do damage is if I left them in a paddock long enough that they fully defoliate the tree and possibly even start to eat the bark. That would do damage. But the whole idea of rotational grazing is you keep the cows moving. They're not in any paddock long enough to actually damage the trees that they're pastured up against. Sure. The other thing about the water management working with the cattle is that it just happened to work out this way. And I really like it. And this is how I always design it now. The way that the uh, swales are pitched at that 1% grade, which describes the flow of the water, is away from our wet wetlands, away from our riparian ravine and away from our ponds. And that's the water that, in that area, the water that's moving through those areas is what's going into the Colorado River, into the basin. And so what's great is as we graze the cows in these alleys, as the manure hits the ground, soaks into the soil and some of it runs off, it's not running off into our riparian zones. It's not running off and polluting the Colorado River. 
it's getting picked up by these swales, which are essentially rib the ribs throughout the entire pasture. They're picking it up and they're transporting that water at a 1% grade so that any of that manure runoff in the water is being transported onto the driest area of the farm and soaking in concentrated on the root systems of the trees we're planting. And before that water ever gets back into the water table and into the water system downstream, it's being filtered by the root systems of these trees, the grasses, and the soil itself. And essentially we're, we're removing uh, manure runoff mm. from our system. So if nothing else, if larger ranches and uh, dairy operations, conventional farms, if nothing else, as a way to keep commercial fertilizers and uh, animal manure out of out of water systems, avoid eutrophication. One all of the our things biggest problems in agriculture right now. If nothing else, to have these uh, swales on their landscape that take that uh, that runoff and distribute it into an agroforestry system on a ridge formation and keep it out of the wet areas and out of the water. If that was the only adjustment to be made, it would be a giant. It'd be a yeah. huge um, motion towards cleaner rivers uh, across our landscape. So combining that with holistic management of the animals and uh, agroforestry, then you're like just hitting it from all sides. But yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, to say nothing about holding those nutrients on the landscape, reducing input costs that would otherwise need to be brought from somewhere else. Can you refresh my memory again about what you planted in your agroforestry rows? I know you're doing some experiment, not only in the best place to plant them along the swales and the berms, but you're starting to push the boundaries about some of the cultivars that maybe are not common to your area, but could be under the right circumstances. Yeah, so there's different soil types across my landscape, and there's different uh, plant species that'll survive thrive or just straight up die depending on where I plant them. So for example, we have wet areas that are close to that ravine that are going to be heavy clay, wet all the time, very alkaline. Then you come up into that very, that middle ground where it's, uh, the soil gets a little better, still alkaline, still has its issues, but mostly it starts to just get too dry at that point. And that's how it is all the way out into the ridges. So what I found my first planting, I thought, oh, I'll plant a lot of stuff close to where the water is because it'll have a better chance of survival. But it was actually too wet and a lot of that rotted out and died. Hmm. So what I found over time is that when people ask me, what did you plant? There's two sections. There's our riparian zones and the, the straight up riparian uh, like plantings that we've done. And then there's what we've done for our agroforestry, like, uh, like for silvopasture. Yeah. They're, they're different categories. So I'll start with the riparian zone, which what survives in those wet soils along that now perennial stream and around those ponds, it's going to be willows, poplars, river birch, elderberry, basically plants that don't mind having their feet wet all the time. And what these plants are doing for me, it's not really for the animals, it's uh, for wildlife, it's for stream bank, uh, it's to prevent erosion on, on the stream banks, it's to 
create habitat uh, for the waterfowl and maybe the beavers will come back someday. They're going to need, need a lot of willows when they come back. Yeah. So we're planting several thousand uh, softwood riparian coppice trees along our water system every year um, in preparation for those beavers to return. Yeah. Anything else I plant in that area is going to die. And that's just something that it's fine. That's what I've learned come up out of that area to where these swales are running and distributing water from the riparian zones, evenly across the arid zones. What we're finding is taking off up, up there. Well, the first year I planted 70 varieties, more or less of every kind of fruit tree, nut tree, uh, timber crop, uh, you name it, planted everything I could just to really gather data. Sure. Some things were like, hundred percent of those died. Other things were like, man, almost all of those lived. And so as we've replanted and come in and filled back in the system, we're having much higher success rates every year to the point where now there's nothing, there's no areas left to really replant mm. it's pretty much filled in now The the heavy hitters, the real success in our soil and our, uh, altitude, which, which is 6,400 feet above sea level and precipitation of 10 inches a year average. Uh, and a low of about zero degrees Fahrenheit. So we're like a zone six B mm -hmm. what we're finding is like the heavy hitting, like silvo pasture go-to trees for us is going to be uh thornless honey locust is going to be one of our favorites. The Antonovka apple, which is like a hardy rootstock apple, a full size apple, um, but it happens to also make, you know, decent apples for, you know, livestock and wildlife and for cider. Yeah. Um, we've had really good luck with like Nanking cherries, Siberian pea shrub, Russian mulberry has done amazing here. And onto the Russian mulberry, I can graft any kind of everbearing mulberry that I like. Mm, yeah. Uh, wild, like hardy apricot, wild plum. A lot of the stone fruits do well here as long as they get enough water. Sure. Uh, but what I've really, and then in the areas that I can definitely get plenty of water to, we can do things like walnuts, hazelnuts, pecans, hickories, yeah. although they're more finicky and they don't grow very fast. Huh. I can speckle oaks around the farm too. Oaks survive here. I have yet to grow an oak tree that reaches the top of my boot. Uh -huh. it's they're they're alive they survive but they're not <laughs> they're seven years old but they're they're seven years old and seven inches tall wow. so uh maybe one day when i'm like an old man i'll be like that oak tree out there look it grew a little bit it, <laughs> it's as tall as me now yeah i don't yeah. know we'll see yeah you just have to you know it's all my, my theory with the oaks is that once the apples and honey locusts and mulberries get tall enough and provide a little bit of shade and protection, oh, okay. the oaks are going to really thrive in the understory Yeah, and, and then come up and emerge. But un, while they're, they're really established, on, I mean, they are, they are later succession. They are. They don't like being just planted out there in the full sun. No, they don't tend to just bust out of pasture. So yeah. My theory with them is that they're going to just sit and hold and survive until they have the shade and the protection from the elements they need. Sure. And that's the whole idea, really, of this first planting is pioneer plants to, you know, uh, just get some cover, some windbreak, some shade yeah. on the landscape, some water retention. Yeah. 
uh, for the animals and for us. Yeah. And with those hardy varieties, uh, like you explained to me previously, a lot of this yield that you're hoping for is mostly going to be for the livestock, not for yourselves, right? It's going to be browsed or grazed by mostly the pigs. I think that you have that, right? Yeah. By the pigs and the cattle, you know, for, for the pigs, I mean, anything that drops is going to be fair game for them, which yeah. is awesome. Uh, for the cattle, you know, what I'm really excited about is honey locust because mm -hmm. You know, the, a lot of the honey locusts that we're planting at this point, and we're going to start our own breeding program with them, are based off of those uh, high production varieties that with the really know, big pods, really big pods that have extremely high sugar content yep. above thirty percent sugar, wow, and protein content above ten percent. Some of them can even hit, uh, I think, twelve or fourteen percent protein, which well, nearly mulberries there. <laughs> Yeah. And you're at that point, you're comparing, it's comparable to things like oats and barley and stuff. It's mm -hmm. actually uh, comparable to, to grain. Yeah. However, it's a perennial grain. So the difference is to grow oats, barley, or like soybeans or corn every year, you're tilling up the landscape and you're creating a monoculture. You're, you're destroying habitat for wildlife. Like if, and that's the whole thing about like people who decide to be plant-based, which is, you know, whatever, everybody can make their own decisions. But the thing about, you know, using grains as a primary food source is that they really utterly destroy your landscape. They like the monoculture grain production, even if it's organic, even if it's non-GMO, it's still a decimation of the landscape. The, and, and the contrast of that is to a perennial agriculture system where, you know, you'd be gaining your nutrients from uh, tree crops and essentially the animals who roam through those tree crops. When we think about it that way, uh, we can, using honey locusts planted on contour, we can like produce um, a similar protein content, similar productivity to a field of grain, but it's on a tree and underneath the tree can still be pasture. It can still have pollinator flowers. It can still have uh you know, not just my cows and pigs, but also deer and elk roaming. It can have uh, the ability to sustain wild turkeys and therefore all the other uh, predators that will, you know, sort of live on those wild turkeys. Basically what I'm saying is like to substitute a tree like honey locust for an annual grain crop, we open up the possibility of uh, reinvigorating the entire ecosystem and maintaining uh, just as good or higher productivity levels on our end. Yeah. Now the, the potential for that overyield and all of the other connections and relationships that can be formed when you don't have to disturb the land like that for an annual harvest is massive. Um, so, man, so there's so many things that we could go into depth about this. You have a lot of little micro enterprises and experiments that you're running what are the ones that you're excited about at the moment what are the ones that you've seen new things emerge from in the last couple of years i mean one of the things we've really honed in on is i guess one of the biggest questions and it's the elephant in the room with regenerative farming is like well how are you funding this yeah is this actually making money uh so yeah, you're I not guess working on a land base that a lot of people would consider to be you know real farming especially not with 
the acreage that is available out in that area, you're still fairly far, small scale for a farm. We're small scale and we're also working with like technically unirrigated high desert. Yeah. So, you know, starting from that point, what we found is like you have to have multi-layered endeavors. Yeah. Other way to say it, a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah. And be willing to, you know, uh, every year you just have to, improve upon those endeavors. So what we've found is that sure, we planted trees six years ago. It's going to be a few more years before the trees are really paying themselves off. And in the meantime, how do we uh, create income flow for this farm? And the alley crop is where it's at. So in between the trees is what you have to, while the trees are growing, you have in between them and that's where you're uh, making money. So what are we using? The main thing for us is beef is running cattle. And so honing in on that and honing in on that market, what we've found is that through trial and error, you can't just run any kind of cattle. You can't just run any breed. You can't just, uh, and for a few reasons, which I'll explain, just maybe save some people a headache. For one, you can't just run any breed because some breeds aren't going to produce a product that is marketable. Like some breeds for so for example, one mistake people might make, oh, well, it's not a lot of land. So let's get like mini cattle. Well, great. Now you've got a bunch of mini steaks. Good luck selling them. And yeah. the market does know, dictate a lot of this stuff. Yeah. The marketability of your product, you have to be able to compete and at least be comparable to what people are used to buying anyway. So what we found is use a heritage breed, full-size cattle. We really like Devons. We found that the, uh, the red Devon breed is amazing. They're hardy. They really eat up all the weeds. They clean up all the corners. They're they're really docile and gentle and respect the fencing. And we found that within that 24 month, you get them to uh, 18 to 24 months, even with no grain at all. So fully foraged and grass fed diet, we're getting 700 to 800 pound hanging weights, fully marbled steaks, an incredibly high quality product, which we are able to sell for a premium because not just the, uh, the quality of the beef, but because of the story that it's backed by the regenerative farming model, the, the health benefits of it, et cetera. The transformation of the land, even yeah. the people behind it. You bet. And there's like breeds that I wouldn't recommend like commercial Angus breeds or any commercial beef breed. It's not going to perform as well in this situation. Is it just because they've been bred for high energy feed, mostly grain to put on the weight necessary for that? That's, that's half of it. Yeah. So half of it is that if you don't finish a commercial Angus on corn, it tastes like shit. Mm. If you think about like the diet that these uh, cattle are, fin they're all, they're all run on range until they're brought into the feedlot for finishing. You know, they're all grass fed up until that point, but what, when they finish them on corn, it homogenizes the product gives it the marbling and gives it that classic flavor. And don't get me wrong. And uh, a corn finished Angus porterhouse. I mean, it's delicious. Mm -hmm. There's no arguing with that. It's a delicious product. The issue is that it's not a sustainable product. It's not a healthy product and it's not a natural product. Whereas like you can achieve a similar product with heritage breed cattle on grass. And no need for the feedlot, no need for the inputs, no need for the corn. 
and so uh, and and the other half of that too of what you brought up the 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 finishing diet is a big part of it but also commercial angus and commercial beef breeds they're not going to be as efficient on pasture so for example devons belted galloways uh heritage breeds they're going to be able to consume low quality forage along with high quality forage and all, and convert all of it into protein they're going to clean up the corners they're going to really do a nice even mow a nice even sweep on the landscape and they're also going to be intelligent. They're not going to eat poisonous plants because they know not to eat them. Yeah. Whereas you take a commercial breed, it's like a, think about Cornish cross hens, you know, they're, they're not very smart. <laughs> and the same with a lot of commercial breeds, they, they've not been bred for intelligence or bred for uh, foraging capabilities. They've been bred for one thing only, which is to get big fast. Okay. So when it comes to my landscape, which is not a perfectly managed, manicured, like field of grass, like my place, it's got prairie dog holes. They can trip in. It's got rocks. They can scrape themselves on. It's got steep areas. It's got noxious uh, weeds and yeah. every kind of plant and weed available. I mean, you have to have, uh, animals that can think mm -hmm. and, and forage intelligently and also work together as a herd. Uh, if there's mountain lions or bears or coyotes around. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, so that does present a challenge. How have you been able to create a herd that has adapted to the challenges of your site? Has this taken a long time? Did you, I mean, the intuition and the experience you had with cattle before this, I'm sure was an asset. Where are you mm -hmm. at with that right now? Well, the good part is that in general, these heritage breeds, they come pre-programmed to be somewhat intelligent. The, it's kind of like you get a border collie. You can't make them, you can't keep them from herding. Sure. They want to herd cattle. It's in They're, their DNA. It's in their DNA. So it ha it didn't take long at all to get heritage breed cattle that were efficient on my landscape. Um, in fact, it happened immediately to the point where I've actually stopped most. I still have a small breeding program with beef just because there's a few lines I'm exploring uh, mostly crosses between, uh, belted Galloway and Devon cattle, but most of the feeders we raise now where I'm able to buy them right from my neighbor who raises Devon cattle and her, her herd of Devon cattle has been here for like decades and is well adapted to our landscape and they're incredibly hardy. They're incredibly intelligent. And, uh, I'm able to buy feeders from her and basically, what that does for me, it allows me to overwinter less animals on the farm here and focus. I've done the same thing with pigs. I, I no longer breed my own pigs. I used to, but I have a buddy who I partnered with uh, in Paonia. I sold him all of my breeding stock and now I buy feeders from him, but I have the same genetics I've always worked with. Yeah. So it's nice you to partner. You don't have to compromise, but you take away some of the complexity of your operation. Yeah. I don't need to be overwintering my whole herd every year, the pigs, especially, which can get pretty messy in the winter. Uh, I still overwinter cattle, but I can use them like precision tools in the winter now. Cause I have my numbers down. I can move them around in the winter and forage them uh, on stockpiled feed all winter. And when there's too much snow and I'm feeding hay, I can really feed them hay in the areas that need it. Like, like, Oh, wow. There's a lot of knapweed in this area. Let's roll out round bales over the knapweed and let the cows eat it, stomp in the grass seeds, poop all over it. 
And then the next spring, when everything starts to come in a little differently, try to get a little water on it. If I can run the cows back over it a couple of times and start to push that knapweed out of the picture and bring in more native grasses and biodiversity. Yeah. And, and that was one of the interesting things like with, with the animal management, with the, how it's all working, we got a lot of like really interesting comments, emails, messages from people after that last video that Steph did. And a, a concern across the board was how can you be basically turning nice, uh, intact, you know, juniper pinion and sagebrush into, into farmland. That's terrible. Like you're mm. doing the opposite. Of, you're, you're doing the opposite of nature. Right. But what's been really interesting is we haven't really imposed much upon the environment. All we've really done is mimic as if the keystone species that used to live here were back. Right. So we've, we've mimicked the beavers in the wet areas. We've mimicked the bison with the cattle. We're essentially mimicking wolves ourselves by management, moving the cattle around, keeping them moving is what the wolves would have done. So all we're really doing is mimicking the motions that if this were truly an intact uh, ecosystem and the keystone species were still here, we're mimicking their motions. And then we're just observing the results. And what that's been leading to is uh, the, the non-native weeds are in recession. The native grasses that I didn't see when I first moved here are now coming up out of the ground germinating because the conditions are ideal for the first time in who knows how long. And the diversity of flowers we see across our pastures now of clovers and alfalfas, different legumes, uh, all these random flowers. I don't even know what they are, a lot of them, but it can't help you wonder maybe did, did a lot of the West actually look like this? Mm. Is this, is this a transformation or is this a restoration or is it somewhere? Is it both? I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting. There's a lot of views on this kind of work, especially cutting into, uh, what you'd call native habitat. Oh, this is but, such a valuable question to pose and a conversation to have. I mean, do you see pinyon pine and sagebrush as the highest potential for that ecology? And does it really, like, when was that established under what conditions? And what are you trying to preserve? It's all based on your previous reference uh, mm -hmm. of, of your own experience of that landscape. I mean, it's often referred to as, oh, what's that term again? Um, uh, baseline reset syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. So every generation has a reference as to what they think of as that ecology being intact or that ecology being lush because we've been on a downward spiral for so long. That's as far as we remember back, right? But when mm -hmm. those areas were, I don't know if the, the bison made it out that far or if that was mostly oh, yeah. deer. Yeah. No, we had I mean, bison here. Okay. Sure. So you had bison as well. I mean, that was a completely different landscape under those regimes, impacts and disturbances. And mm -hmm. there's no way that it was primarily pinon and sagebrush when they were constantly being trampled by massive herds that we can't even wrap our minds around anymore. And so the question becomes, especially in the ecological sphere is like, is there room for wise observationally based place-based management for higher successional and uh, life dynamics here 
can we do it through farming or can this only be something that we see as an ecosystem in which human intervention uh, is, is either unwelcome or only seen through a, a detrimental lens that doesn't give us the potential to act as the keystone species, much like the beaver that we could be by mm -hmm. simply cutting off the conversation at that point. It's like, this is what it is now. This is what it should be. The only way we can preserve it is by getting people away from it. It's a strange, strange, I guess, point of, of reference. And there's the misconception that the best thing you can do these days for land is let it go fallow. Yeah. Let it go back to nature. Right. Thing is, without the keystone species present to manage the landscape, going fallow is not, it's not ideal. It's, it's not regenerative. Not, it's not regenerative. It's actually going to just leave room for, like my place was fallow when I got here. And it was overrun with with the invasive species. It was uh, parched. It was, you could tell. Well, as it you've been talking about the quantity and the diversity of life, not only of the species that you're actively managing, but the others that that ecosystem is now able to support without active management has skyrocketed in the few years that you've been there. It, it blew us away. And in such a short amount of time, which, you know, you know, the whole concept of like, if you let, if you're raising pigs and you let them go, they go feral, they start, yeah. it takes, it only takes one or two generations of pigs being in There's the wild. There's examples all around me because they've interbred with the, yeah. the wild boar around here. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take long for them to go back to how they were back in the day and, and become fully adapted for uh, living in the wild and, and reinvigorated that part of its DNA. And if you think sure. about it, our landscape is kind of similar. It's, it's come so far from what it was kind of like how the domestic pig has come so far from the wild boar. And we've come so far from apes maybe. And like all these different ways that we've pulled so far, mm. we've stretched it as far as we could in a way. Yeah. But it, the minute that you present the opportunity for things to thrive, for things to become robust, you know, the example here is, the germination of the native grasses that have been sitting dormant for who knows how long that seed bank is still the, there the reinvigoration of our water table the the springs popping up all over our landscape the fact that we i've got grasses up to my shoulders now around the farm you know which i run the cows back and forth across trampling them and grazing them yeah that is a it's a rewilding you could say it's a bringing back the uh the nature bringing back the uh the management of those keystone species but then furthermore creating high quality edible profitable products as a byproduct of reinvigorating the landscape and that's what the beef is that's what the pork is that's what all of our products are is uh hey so we're doing this thing we're like building soil and fostering biodiversity and creating wetlands and blah, blah, blah. And it just so happens that it like spit all this like incredibly high quality food out at us yeah. as we went. So, so that's the other thing is that was always <laughs> the incentive for humans to do this. It wasn't some big government spending regime to increase biodiversity on a piece of land. It was, you got a higher quality of life, better food and abundant water from managing it correctly. It wasn't mm -hmm. just something that was incentivized through these kind of market uh, right. manipulations and tools, 
we didn't need somebody else telling us that this was something that we should do as an obligation for a responsibility to offset our terrible impact in other places or our greenhouse gases. This is exactly the role that humans evolved to take in their landscapes, to increase the capacity, to produce things of value, and to manage the, the cycles and the flows that, you know, that we had the intuition and the wisdom to interact with in a beneficial way. It's very strange to me that uh, we have to pour money into these projects, in my opinion, to get people to do them. I think they should be self-evident. And at the same time, one thing to remember these days is so there's a lot of value. There are a lot of ways to think about value. For example, like monetary value is obviously in our culture is king. For me, the value of my kids growing up milking cows with me mm -hmm. and my wife having a beautiful garden and making sauerkraut for our family and the fact that we have our own meat in our freezer and we have a community of loving people around us in this valley to me that's really high value but the hot what's the the, the dollar sign is what speaks yeah to our culture right now and so the way to in a way incentivize more of this and proliferate it is really to be showing more and more systems like what we have here and what, like what Mark has in Wisconsin, what all the other people who are doing this have, where we are financially viable. We, we are making profit. And because of our practices, we are tapping into a, a better market and, and receiving a, a premium for our products. And, and that's the thing. If the ranchers around here, and all across the Southwest, for example, were to adapt these, uh, adopt these techniques and these ways of uh, holistic land management. If the incentive was they're going to make more money and they're going to spend less on inputs and they're going to have more water, like, it, the list goes on. And then we get into other values, clean water, community, health, yeah. the things that are important. Mental and <laughs> yeah. Then all of a sudden we have the ways to incentivize this to to move faster other than just trying to hand people money to do it. hundred percent. Well, look, I think that's a good place to maybe put a pause on it. There's so many other ways that we can go in this discussion and go deeper into not only your learnings, but the emergent properties of what you've developed that you didn't perhaps uh, see or, or really work towards in the beginning, but have just come about from the run on effects of doing this work. Let's leave it here for now. We'll definitely plan a follow-up soon. Man, it has been an absolute joy to, to catch up with you, to see you doing so well, to see the evolution of this ecosystem that you've helped to design. Uh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure, my man. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And, and it's great to reconnect. And uh, hey, go check out when you have a chance, look at those photos of Nicaragua right now where we put that system in. Cause it is I did. I was just, uh, I was just in touch beautiful. with them. Yeah. I mean, it's completely changed. The, the ponds have filled, the, the plantings are thriving. It's been wonderful to, to follow up with them. I'll put the links to not only your farm, but to theirs as well in the show notes for this. Are there any other ways that you would tell our listeners to get in touch with you and see what you've got on offer? You know, Instagram is a great way right now uh, because it's just how we are uh, marketing to the world is using that platform. One of these days we'll have a website. We don't have it yet. Uh, but yeah, for now, that's probably the best way to find us and, and keep up to date on our project. 
Brilliant. All right. Cedar Springs Farm. I'll link to that and, on the show notes as well. And and for people who are interested in these kind of systems for their own landscapes as well, it's of course important to mention restoration agriculture development. Of course. Rad and as a way of, as a resource and as uh, you know, for people who are interested in this own this kind of land transformation for your own properties. They're a great. I know that, yeah, I know they've got workshops and projects coming up that people can connect with. So I'll be sure to link to that too. Absolutely. All right, buddy. I'll catch you on the next one. Good to see you, bro. You too. Thanks again to Jake. You can find links to the social media accounts for his farm, as well as restoration agriculture development and their website, all on the show notes at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.